Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, Jesus continues, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will be in danger of the judgment. Whenever I come to these verses, I can't help but thinking of the classic repartee between two notable people of history, Sir Winston Churchill and one by the name of Lady Astor. They were antagonists against each other for a long period of time. Um, On one occasion, Lady Astor remarked, Sir, if you were my husband, I'd put arsenic in your tea. To which he replied, If I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) And then on another occasion, they were out in public, and it seemed that Sir Winston Churchill had a little too much to drink. And uh, she said to him, to embarrass him publicly, she said, Sir, you're drunk. And he said, without missing a beat, Madam, you're ugly. And in the morning, I will be sober. I know, some of you guys are thinking, I'm going to remember that. You know, we wrongly classify sin into categories. I grew up doing this. I had mortal sins and venial sins. And the venial sins were like misdemeanors. The mortal sins were like felonies, I suppose. But in anybody's list of sins, murder would certainly be in the top few. Because murder violates the preservation of life in any society. It's on the top of the list. It was on God's top ten of things not to do. Thou shalt not murder. But what we see here is Jesus goes deeper beneath the action into the attitude. And the attitude he deals with here is the attitude of sinful anger. Sinful anger. When I was a boy, I had a problem with anger. Ask my mama. She remembers when I kicked my bedroom door, left a little karate chop hole in it, that my dad decided to leave there for six years, by the way. Wouldn't take it down. It was just a reminder of Skip's wrath. See, this is what it does. Or the time that I threw my brother through the front window of our house onto the front lawn. My parents had to fix it. The next week, we were left alone again, and my brother threw me through that window out into the front lawn. It's a little snippet of my growing up. Verse 21 begins a series of six authoritative statements from the lips of Jesus. And what he does is he compares outward with inward. What you see on the outside and what is going on on the inside. Each statement begins with the phrase, You have heard that it was said. And so he'll say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not uh, swear falsely. You have heard that it was said, you shall not uh, divorce unless you give a certificate. In each case, he compares an outward action with the very heart of the law, an inward attitude. Now, when Jesus does this, he's not changing the law of Moses. He's not modifying the law. He's not saying, I know Moses said this, but I'm going to change things up a little bit. Rather, he's comparing 
what the traditional teaching of the rabbis was on that law versus what was the heart of God concerning that law. And all of these six authoritative statements are really illustrations of one verse. Go back to verse 20. Let's get that context. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the problem is not murder. The problem is anger. The problem is not adultery. The problem is lust. The problem isn't keeping your oath as much as the problem of integrity within the heart of a human being. So Jesus gets down to the very heart of righteousness itself. You see, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to feel smug religiously and say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Okay. Well, I've never cheated on my wife. All right. Well, I've never broken any contractual agreement. See, that's exactly what the Pharisees were saying, and that equaled their standard of righteousness, an outward set of actions. But you know that God has always been interested on the inside. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at what? The heart. In Proverbs 16, verse 2, The ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. I'm speaking to some this morning whose real issue in life is this very issue, the issue of anger. It's, it's what you struggle with. It's your Achilles heel. It's the problem. Now, some of you deal with it, perhaps, and you shrug it off. Oh, well, I, I'm just a temperamental person. Okay, uh, let's see. That's about 90% um, um, temper and 10% mental. That's what happens when you get angry. You just sort of lose it. So we want to look at this text today, verse 21, all the way down to verse 26. And this is how we're going to look at it. We want to look at the regulation as given by the Pharisees, their comments on the law. You have heard that it was said this. That's the regulation. Then second, we want to look at the root of the problem. But I say unto you. And then finally, we want to look at the remedy to this problem. Let's begin then with the regulation, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Jesus begins with what was familiar to them. They heard the sixth commandment, you shall not kill or murder. Now this has always been a problem with mankind. It's our history. You might say, unfortunately, it's our legacy the very first crime committed in humanity was the crime of homicide where Cain killed his brother Abel. So at whatever period of history you look at, whether we had rocks in our hands or knives in our hands or guns in our hands or bombs in airplanes, we have killed each other. People have killed people. And out of the 11 so-called developed nations in the world, which nation do you think tops the list of murder? the United States of America. The statistic in the video was 16,000. If you add up intentional and unintentional homicide, you have over 25,000 people murdered every single year. But listen to this. We're dealing in a generation that goes deeper than the act. How many people do you think would actually kill if you gave them enough money? 
You say, oh, come on. You mean actually pay somebody off to be a hitman? Yes, exactly. That was a question that a group of researchers from New York did some study on, and they discovered in their research, quote, 7% of us say that they would murder someone for enough money. That's about one in every 14 people. Whether they could actually pull the trigger in is another question, but 36 million of us would be willing to consider the offer. You're kidding, you say. Why is that? And why is the murder rate so huge in our country? I don't know all the answers, but I can give you one. Programming. We have programmed our culture to accept it by our education and by our media. First of all, our education. You know, when you're telling kids every day in a classroom you're just a biological accident, you just evolved, and you're not a special creation by God, but rather you've evolved, you're a fortuitous occurrence of an accidental circumstance, we're telling them they're animals. And then we're surprised when they act like animals. I can't believe it. I've heard people say that. These kids are acting like animals. You've told them they were. What do you expect? It's programming. Out of the American Journal of Pediatrics, Dr. Peter Singer writes, We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God and singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. Add to that education the media which pours billions of dollars into an industry that promotes and condones violence and murder. Every hour on children's programming, the average is 25 acts of violence are viewed, either seen or implied in an hour's time. 25 acts. So, when you get down to it, how a person views death is determined by how the person views life. If that person views life as you are unique, a creation by God, then you treat life very, very in a sacred manner. If, on the other hand, you are an accident, you're a cosmic arrangement over time, then you're going to view death as very, very different. It's just a biological occurrence. That's why you can justify euthanasia. That's why you could justify abortion, etc., etc. Prince Clement once told Napoleon, his emperor, that the emperor's plan would cost a hundred thousand lives. Napoleon just said, what's a hundred thousand lives to me? He viewed life as incidental, so he viewed death as incidental as well. So, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. That's the regulation. Now look at the root, verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now you might be thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I've never said anybody's a Raka. <laughs> ah, but keep going. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, Jesus is getting down to the very root of murder itself, isn't he? Because the rabbinic thought, 
the rabbinical teaching, as well as most other cultures, is that if you commit the act, you're guilty. Anything short of the act, you're not guilty. So you can yell at a person, you can swear at a person, you can give them bitter looks and send them nasty notes and gossip all over town if you want, but as long as you don't pull the trigger, you're just fine. Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. It goes deeper than that. I looked up murder in Webster's Dictionary. It says nothing about motive except this. Crime or murder is a crime of unlawful killing of a person, especially with malice aforethought. You may have the motivation of murder, but it's not a crime until you actually commit the act. Several years ago, a man walked into the foyer of our church that I was pastoring, and I must have said something in the previous week that angered him because he walked into the foyer with a gun, and he pulled it out, and he was going to aim it at the pulpit, and luckily one of my ushers was a friend and tackled him and drug him out and called the police. He was not booked for murder, but it would seem that he had the intention to do so because he had the gun and it was loaded and it was going toward my direction. Jesus is getting to that very root of what would cause a person to be so filled with anger that though they may never do that or never even pull the trigger, they would say, I wish you were dead. That's the root of it. Jesus, what he does here then is widen the definition and the penalty of murder, saying it's not just a civil issue here. It's a spiritual issue. It's a heart issue. Murder doesn't begin in the hands. It begins in the heart. It's more than just an act. It's an attitude. Now, when he said that, I can imagine all the people kind of either got really quiet or dropped their jaws because suddenly Jesus was now addressing a crowd full of murderers. If you've ever been angry without a cause, you're in danger, Jesus says, of judgment. You see, he's stripping away self-righteousness. He's going back to verse 20. Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't make it to heaven. Oh, by the way, you might say I've never murdered. If you've been angry without a cause, you're guilty. He strips away that facade. Now think about it. Most of us would never place in the same category anger and murder. But probably every one of us in this room at some time has been filled with hatred toward another person and even thought, I wish you weren't alive. You're in the way. I wish you were dead. Yet, by fear or cowardice or lack of an opportunity, we didn't do anything about it. But we're thinking and wishing in our hearts that person wasn't there. You know, even the worst murderers will justify their actions and their attitudes. Adolf Hitler did. He was creating a master race. These people were in the way. Uh, those who are into the jihad. This is a holy war. We're doing this to honor God. Back in 1931, there's a story about a man by the name of Crowley, New York City criminal. Two-gun Crowley, they nicknamed him. Uh, he was a murderer, killed a lot of people. The police had been after him for a long time. And uh, it was so bad that one occasion, the police pulled him over, pulled his car over, and asked for his driver's license. And Crowley pulled out his gun and shot the policeman in the abdomen twice, then got out of the car, took the policeman's gun, and shot him again, and then drove away. 
They finally caught up with him, and after about an hour gunfight in his girlfriend's apartment, they caught old two-gun Crowley. They hauled him in. On his person was a note that simply read that he wrote, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody any harm. Oh, really? You see, this is exactly the kind of self-deceit that Jesus is nailing here. Deep down, I'm a good person. Yeah, but you murdered someone. Yeah, but deep down, I'm really good. Oh, really? I don't think so. The scribes and the Pharisees felt good because they compared themselves to murderers and said, I'm not one of them. Now, Jesus speaks of anger here, doesn't he? He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. I discovered something that there's a couple of different Greek words for the word anger. One is the Greek word thumos. We get the term thermal, heated from it. It speaks of somebody flying off into a rage, flying off the handle, a flare-up. The word that is used here is not that. It's not just, I lost my temper. It's the word argizo, which means a long-standing, seething, nurturing grudge. It's the kind of attitude that says, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. That's argizo. That's this sinful, seething, nurturing anger that you don't let go of. So... Do we commit murder? By this definition, you bet every time we hold a grudge, every time we gossip, every time we slander and say something to discount another person's person, by this definition, this is murder. But you'll notice that Jesus says, whoever is angry without a cause. You might go, glad he said that, because I got a cause. Okay, well, let's explore that. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. There is such a thing as a holy kind of an anger. There is an anger that is not condemned in the Bible, but rather encouraged. Martin Luther called it the anger of love. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, here's a command. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. We call that righteous indignation. That was the indignation Jesus had when he went into the temple and overturned the tables and took a whip and drove them out of the temple. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, incarnate love with a whip, turning over the tables. You'd say, what, is he having a bad Messiah day? Why would he do that? Because this is incarnate love who loves the glory of his Father and hates the sin of self-righteousness that would deplete it. Now, now be careful, because whenever you say, well, that's the kind of anger that I have, a righteous indignation. To be angry and sin not means you can't be angry with anything except sin. To be angry and sin not means you can't be angry at anything except sin. But then Jesus says, in the same verse, And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. That's an Aramaic word. It's an ancient term. It means to despise with arrogance a person's 
intelligence or being. It would be equivalent to calling somebody an empty head. There's a story, an ancient story from Jewish rabbinic tales of a, of a student walking home from a very famous lecturer's house. And this guy was a Pharisee. And he was proud that he was so smart. He had so many degrees after uh, his name. And as he walked through the streets, he recognized somebody and he said, You raka, how ugly you are. Are all the men in your town this ugly? And he said, I don't know, sir, but go ask my maker why his creation is so ugly. Go ask my maker why his creation is so ugly. In other words, when you slander someone made in the image of God, you're slandering the God who made that person in his image. That's the idea of this term, raka. There's another word Jesus mentions, the word fool. It's in our same verse. Moros is the Greek word. It means stupid or dull. We get the term moron from it. It refers to calling somebody a fool out of hatred, wishing they were dead. You see the contrast between the action and the attitude, what's on the outside versus what's on the inside? If you were to get lessons from these, I'd give you three so far. Number one, um, attitude of hatred may never lead to the action of sin, but it's equivalent to it. The attitude of hatred may never lead to the action of murder, but it's equivalent to it in Jesus' estimation. That's serious. Number two, sin begins deep within the heart so that if you allow it to continue, it will come to full bloom and become a root of bitterness. And number three, whenever we by words destroy another person's character, God takes that very, very, very seriously. It's inexcusable. You know, the Bible says six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I, I hear something or read something that clearly of God hates this, I want to take note of that. It's something I'd like to stay away from. Not, well, I'll consider if I really am against that or not. Six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And on that list, he who sows discord among the brethren. Jim Dobson writes, Satan's most successful maneuver in churches and Christian organizations is to get people angry at one another, to attack and insult our brothers and sisters, thus splitting the body of Christ. Satan loves it. And, and, and then he'll give us the justification. It's righteous indignation. Really? Are you angry at sin? Or are you angry that you've been inconvenienced? So we have to be careful. Now, I'm glad that Jesus didn't stop right there. He gives us the remedy in the next couple of verses. Verse 23. Therefore, see, here's a solution. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, 
you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Here's the remedy. Admit it, number one. Correct it, number two. And expedite it, number three. Admit it. Notice he says, you're there at the altar, and there you remember. Something comes to your mind. You go, oh, here I am bringing this lamb to the priest, laying my hands on it. But I now recall, it comes to my mind that my brother Shlomo, I'm thinking of the Jewish context here now, he's really mad at me. He's really angry at me. So you know what, priest? Hold on to that. Hold that thought. I'm going to leave my gift with you. I'm going to go find Shlomo. I'm going to make it right with him. Then I'm going to come back and offer the gift. You know, the first problem is a lot of us don't admit there's a problem. We're in denial. I have no problem. I see this in marriages. The guy will sometimes say, Oh, no, I don't have the problem. She has the problem. But if you're there worshiping and you recognize there is that rift, you first go reconcile before you go worship. Jesus is referring to those who have a problem with you that you cognizantly know about. Now, be careful here because anybody could get paranoid and ask, you okay with me? You mad at me? You know, why did you smile that way? What did you mean when you said hello? You can, you can get nuts over this stuff. Admit it. Number two, correct it. Verse 24. Jesus says, go your way. First be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. This is interesting. I thought about this this week. Here's a guy bringing his lamb to the priest, to the altar, as a sacrifice for sins. Now you look at that and say, now wait a minute. Isn't the blood of that lamb, that little animal that's going to be slain, is to atone for the sins of the worshiper? Isn't that enough? I mean, can't he just say, yeah, I've had a lot of bad feelings toward people and they have bad feelings and they're mad at me. I'm just going to offer this little gift right here. Because the blood of this little lamb is going to atone for it. Jesus says, you know what? Stop. Stop. Time out. Time out. Go back and find that person and make it right. In math, I always learned that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line until I read my Bible. And I find that the shortest distance between God and myself isn't always directly to God. Sometimes it's through an offended brother or sister that I go to first. Let's say... Uh, you pulled out of the parking lot this morning. You're having a good time. You've got your family in your car or you're alone, however it might be, and you're pulling out. You don't see the person walking behind you and you plow right into them and they're lying in the parking lot, broken legs in a pool of blood. Now, God forbid. But let's just say it happened. You walk out and you notice it and you go, hmm, Lord, forgive me for doing this and I pray that you just help this poor person and provide for his needs and bless him, lead him, guide him, direct him in Jesus' name. I'm sorry. Amen. And then you were to go to that person and go, it's okay now. God bless. <laughs> Out of the parking lot. Is it okay? <laughs> no. Because you haven't made it right with that person yet. See, worship isn't enhanced by better music or by better preaching, but by better relationships by better relationships.
That's what Jesus is referring to. Interesting story about Leonardo da Vinci was painting The Last Supper. As he was working on that work, there was somebody that he had a disagreement with, a rift that broke into a, a, a fight. Da Vinci flared up at the guy, yelled at him, and tried to go back to painting the face of Jesus, those delicate lines in the face of Jesus, and he found himself uninspired. He couldn't do it until he laid down his brushes, asked for forgiveness, and then he was able to complete the painting. The heaviest load you can carry personally is a pack of grudges. Which brings us to the next point. Not only admit it, not only correct it, but expedite it. Notice the word quickly. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you up to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into jail. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Do it quickly, urgently. Don't allow bitterness, anger to seethe and grow and separate you from anybody else. Here's the principle. Ephesians 4. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, before the day is over, go to your husband, go to your wife, go to your son, go to your daughter, go to your mom, go to your dad, go to that person that you know is really angry. Try to make it right. Before the sun goes down, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Phyllis Diller had her own spin on it. She used to say, never go to bed mad, stay up and fight. I like the Bible's version a little better, don't you? No, don't stay up and fight. Stay up and work it out. Fix it. Expedite it. Now let me give you a free rendering of, of what we just read. You will be thrown into prison and you won't get out till you pay the last penny. Here's the principle. If you and I refuse to reconcile, your anger will imprison you, will keep you captive, will bind you and others. There was a research group that did a study of 192 couples and found, quote, 75% of men who died from cancer had wives who suppressed their anger. Men who suppressed their anger had a greater risk of dying of cardiovascular disease. Now, please, I'm not saying everybody with cancer, I'm not painting with a broom here, is, has, is in this category, but it's an interesting finding that 75% of those who died from cancer had wives who suppressed their anger, and men who did it, it increased their risk of cardiovascular disease. The researchers explained, suppressing basic emotions tends to alter the balance of daily routines, creating stress and disrupting sleep. Men seem to be more vulnerable because they're dependent on the emotional support from their wives. Okay, if there's any Winston Churchills out there, or Lady Astors, and you're thinking, oh, wait till we get together again, I've got just the right chop in mind. Wait till she hears this. Wait till he hears this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth living that way and then covering up sin with a veneer of worship. To come and sing and, oh God, I love you. Wait a minute. You can't cover it over that way. You've got to make it right. 
You may have heard about the painter who was painting a church building. The pastor asked him to do it. The guy ran out of paint, so he added paint thinner to his mixture, and he painted it till he ran out of that, and he added more thinner, and he kept going, and he added more till pretty much it was thinned so much that it was just paint thinner, basically, on the church. He finished, and the next day it rained, and it was all washed off. And the preacher hung up a sign in front of the church for the painter to see, repaint and thin no more. (laughs) Only a preacher would do that, right? Repaint and thin no more. Hey, could it be, could it be that some here have covered over their lives with a thin gloss of morality, of spirituality, of slight interest in spiritual things or in church. And you've come to church, but you haven't really given your life to Christ. You want relief? How do you spell relief? Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. He's the lamb that will forgive you, set you free, and empower you to get right with other people. Heavenly Father, we just now pause before we sing any song, before we talk to any other person, and our hearts are still before you, O Lord. You know us inside and out. You know our motivations. You know our inmost thoughts. You know what we struggle with. You know what we laugh about. You know what worries us in life. And Lord, as you search our hearts in this area, in this issue, Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us and help us to forgive and help others to forgive us. As we manage these things that we all go through in life, bumps in the road of relationships, smooth them out, Lord. Help us to be responsible and take take the right road. Father, we also want to pray for anyone who might be sitting with us this morning. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and maybe right next to us, or maybe it's us. We've never really given our lives to Christ in truth and in repentance. We've never asked you to come in and reign supreme and be Lord and ruler. To us, it's coming to church. To us, it's been an activity, but not a reality of walking daily with you, of knowing you. And so, Lord, it's our prayer that some who are here this morning who need to release their lives to you would do so would come in genuine repentance to the foot of Calvary's cross to be forgiven. And if that speaks to you and of you this morning, if you're here before we close as we're praying, I want you to raise your hand up. And in raising your hand, you're saying, Skip, pray for me. Pray for me because I need to give my life to Jesus Christ personally. I need to make it real. God bless you in the back to my left. Anybody else, raise your hand up so we can see your hand and pray for you. God bless you right up here in the front and in the middle, yes, man. Lord, thank you so much for these souls, these lives, these men, these women whom you love. And bring them, Lord, not only to faith in you, but to fruitfulness for you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.